Well, if you have your Bibles there with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be looking together at verses 23 through 37. In this text, uh, tonight we get the second description of what the church looked like for early Christians. Earlier in chapter 2, Luke tells us that the church devoted itself to the teaching of the apostles, to fellowship, and to prayer. And in this text, we get sort of a zoom in on, on what their prayers looked like, especially in response to early persecution that they were um, enduring from Jewish leaders. Uh, Peter and John had recently been arrested because they were healing and, and teaching in the uh, synagogue, uh, teaching about Jesus. And, and some of the most powerful people in their world threatened them, uh, demanded that they stop teaching about Jesus. Um, miraculously, uh, Peter and John boldly stand before them and continue to proclaim Jesus. Um, and the leaders actually let him go. And so what we see here is, is what Peter and John do after the leaders let them go from arresting them and threatening them and demanding that they stop teaching about Jesus. And what did they go do? They went straight to their friends. They told them everything that happened to them, and they prayed together. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Um, now, before we get into the prayer, I think it's really helpful to remember that the entire book of Acts is telling us about what God is doing. This is something Matt reminded us about last week, that, that God is the main actor in this whole story. There's other supporting casts that come in and go out as the story goes on, but it's God's story that we're meant to be attuned to as we read through Acts. So, when we watch the early church uh, pray together in the face of persecution and suffering, it, it shouldn't really be a surprise to us that what we mostly learn about is who they're praying to. Uh, in fact, you'll see once we get into this that, that only a very small portion of this prayer actually has requests. So if you, if you think of prayer and requests as sort of synonyms, this is going to uh, break that idea just a little bit because only a small part is actually them making requests. And when they do, those requests are pretty surprising, at least they were to me. They don't pray for less persecution. They don't pray for deliverance. They don't pray that God would take their suffering away. Now, it's not that we don't learn anything from what they pray for. We definitely do. But the main point is that in this prayer, we learn an awful lot about who they're praying to and that that is what determines what they're praying for. And the reason why that matters for us is because the promise of the Bible is that we have access to this same God that they were praying to. Now, I don't know about you, um, but personally, I need to look at a prayer that takes my focus away from my immediate requests and frames it much, much more broadly in terms of, of who God is and, and what he is to us. Uh, the fact that we're meeting over Zoom right now and, and not in person, many of us, is just one more in, in what feels like an uncountable number of events over this past year that's left most of us in uh, some kind of disorientation, maybe anxiety, uncertainty, frustration, disappointment. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say by, by this point for most of us, weariness. And for me, Sometimes this can create a, a sort of a, a fog <laughs> that I feel like I'm in, where even in my prayers, I, I really can struggle to cut through that fog and feel like I, I engage with God, that I see him, 
that I meditate on him, that I let his glory and his work provide the lens that helps me make sense of all this stuff around me. It feels like it's hard to cut through the fog to do that. And I wonder if you've experienced anything like that in the past couple of months. If so, I'm really thankful for this text tonight because it helps us back away for a moment from, from a lot of our immediate requests, immediate circumstances, things that we really do need. And it helps us to see that prayer is much more than a request line, that it is direct access. It's direct access to a God that is sovereign. It's direct access to a God that is active. And it's direct access to a God that is with us. So read with me as I read this prayer from Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Jennifer and I uh, started dating sophomore year. We were in college. We met through mutual friends, and, and we lived in different towns when we started dating. So that, so that means that we did an awful lot of phone conversation and chatting, voice uh, chatting and text chatting. Um, and after one date in Cookville, which is where I was living, we thought it'd be a good idea for me to meet her mom. So I planned a trip to Hendersonville, and we went to the Eddie Bauer where her mom was the manager at the mall. Um, and I'll admit, as we were walking in, I didn't know what to think. I'd never met Jennifer's mom. Jennifer and I barely knew each other at all. Uh, I honestly wasn't totally sure Jennifer was thinking the same thing about our relationship that I was thinking. So I expected us to walk in, say hello, head out the door, and then that was, that was kind of it. Uh, but to my surprise, when I walked in, Jennifer's mom bursted from the back of the store, almost running up to me. She grabbed my hand, shook my hand, beaming, told me how long she'd been waiting to meet me, how excited she was to meet me. And then she walked me around the store. She introduced me to every employee that she had. She told me all about the store and how she had set it up and what she was doing. I'm sure meanwhile, Jennifer standing there, you know, wishing her mom would, would kind of play it cool a little bit and, and not give, you know, everything away. Um, but, but the point of this story is that 
Jennifer's mom didn't tell me anything about what Jennifer had said to her across the past few months of our early relationship. But the way that she talked to me told me everything that I needed to know. The way that she talked to me told me that, that something had been said to her that made her so excited to meet me, she had been anticipating it all day long. Uh, it, it told me that Jennifer had been telling her enough about me that she knew things about me and, and, and wanted me to know things about her. And, and what it told me was that, that in all likelihood, Jennifer was thinking exactly the same thing that I was thinking about our relationship. And, and that's because how we talk to someone tells us an awful lot about that person and what we think about that person. Maybe you've experienced this when someone uh, you felt like has talked down to you. Maybe, maybe you could tell they thought they were smarter than you just, just based on how they talked to you, not because they said it. Or maybe you've been in a first job right after a, a specialized training and, and it was clear the way people talked to you, they expected you to be the expert on something. And you felt like, I just graduated. I am still figuring out this whole thing myself. Uh, well, in our text tonight, the way these Christians talk to God in this prayer paints a vivid picture of who this God is to them. There's three characteristics of God that I want to tease out of this prayer, and I want us to spend some time thinking about tonight. And then I want to end by just a, a quick few suggestions about how these characteristics might impact the way we think about God and, and the way that we pray. The first thing that we see from the beginning of this prayer is that these Christians are praying to a sovereign God. Just look at the first words of the prayer to see who they're praying to. They, they address God as sovereign Lord. Now, to be sovereign means to hold supreme and ultimate power. And when they refer to God as Lord right next to sovereign, what they're saying is they're declaring their allegiance to this ruler. They're saying, not only are you sovereign, you are my ruler. I am your subject. But why does this God get to be sovereign? Why does he get to rule everything? Why does he get all the power? Why is he worthy of their allegiance? The next line of the prayer tells us, because he made it all. It's almost like they're standing in awe at this God that made the heavens, that made the earth, that made the sea, the, the, the things that were vast beyond their comprehension. And not only that, that made everything in them. He made it. He owns it. And so he has the supreme authority to rule it. Now, I, I want you to think just for a second about what the implications are for them praying to a sovereign Lord, given what we know about the context. They were just standing before some of the most powerful rulers in their world. They were threatened by them. Their lives were at risk. So when Peter, John, and their friends prayed, they began by declaring, maybe even just to remind themselves that although these rulers think they have power over us, we fall under the authority of the true sovereign. The God that they serve made the heavens, made the earth, made everything in them, which means that he even made the rulers that were just threatening them. He made it all. And so they serve him. 
But there's at least one other implication, and there's one that I want to uh, make sure that you notice to, to them praying to a sovereign Lord. It, you know, it makes sense that, that serving a God that rules the leaders that just threatened you would be encouraging. But, but the other implication is that if God is the sovereign Lord, this means he's also the one ruling over the suffering and persecution that they are experiencing. A sovereign Lord that made everything and is over everything is a Lord that conceivably could in a moment wipe away the persecution and the suffering, just just take it away. But they know that's not happening. They've already seen Jesus tortured and killed by these same rulers. Peter and John just spent a night in prison. Very soon in Acts, we see that the persecution only ramps up. They go back to jail. People start to become, uh, people start to get killed because of their teaching about Jesus. And so their suffering continues. I think this implication is, is really important for us to see because one of the biggest challenges, I think, in trusting in a sovereign Lord is when we realize that he's even over the things in our life we would desperately like to get rid of. So how do we make sense of that? How do we know that this sovereign Lord is actually for us, even when he doesn't take our pain away? I think think the second attribute about God that we see in this prayer begins to answer that question for us. And the second attribute that we see is that they're praying to a God that is active. So they're praying to a God that's sovereign, and they're praying to a God that's active. This prayer actually goes straight to that question by by putting their current suffering into a larger kind of story about what God is doing in the world that that gives their suffering purpose. It gives it meaning. This is something we all do. We we all tell stories. We we kind of build these narratives and then the things, little things that we experience day-to-day moments get get put into those bigger stories. And that's how we make sense of of what's going on around us. Think about Rapunzel in her tower uh, in the movie Tangled. That's right. All you little kids out there uh, just woke up and are listening. Uh, the story that she knows, the beginning, um, is that she's in the tower because the world is a dangerous place. And so in that story, being stuck in a room in a tower is protection. A tower is refuge. But once she learns the true story, that she's the daughter of the king and queen and was kidnapped as a baby. All of a sudden, that tower is not protection anymore. The tower is a prison. It's the same tower, the same room, the same circumstances. But they mean really different things depending on the story that they're sitting in. So in this prayer, these early Christians make sense of their suffering under God's sovereignty by reminding themselves that this God is active and telling the story of what God is doing and how they fit into what God's doing. First, they refer back to Psalm 2. This was written by David centuries earlier. So so look with me at verse 25. This is where they go to Psalm 2. They say, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, 
Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, it, it helps to know a little bit about this psalm to, to make sense of what they're doing here by, by referencing this. Um, the, the psalm itself begins with, with almost these exact same words, but then it goes on to tell us that God laughs at the rage and the plot of the rulers of this earth. He says that, the, um, he, says that he has set his king on his holy hill. The psalm tells us that he will place all nations under the rule of this king. He says the ends of the earth will be this king's possession. And the psalm ends by warning the earth's rulers to submit to this king. And then the final line is a promise that all who take refuge in this king will be blessed. Now, in all likelihood, to the original readers and to David, Psalm 2 was a psalm about God's favor over David's throne. But in Acts chapter 2, in Peter's sermon, what he tells us is that the promises in this psalm and in in, uh, other psalms that Peter's referencing in chapter 2, those promises couldn't have really been about David because he died. The ends of the earth did not come under his rule. So, what Peter tells us in his sermon in chapter 2 is that these psalms were really about Jesus. Jesus that came in the line of David. They were promises about David's kingdom, but they were really about Jesus. What Psalm chapter 2 is doing then is it's, it's describing the rulers of this earth and their reaction to Jesus and their opposition to him. So what this means as they're starting to look back to Psalm chapter 2 is they're saying, hey, our persecution isn't really even about us. It's about the rulers of this earth setting themselves against God and his anointed one, Jesus. The the next thing they do is they connect this from Psalm chapter 2 to things that they had just experienced with Jesus. Uh, In verse 27, they they show us how this text from centuries earlier, Psalm chapter 2, came true with what they saw with Jesus. They said, for truly in this city were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pilate and Gentiles and people in Israel. These are the very rulers and peoples plotting in vain and raging and setting themselves against Jesus that Psalm 2 describes. But that's not the whole story. It's not just that that the persecution isn't really aimed at them. It's aimed at Jesus. As they continue to tell this story, they draw on this theme of God's sovereignty. In verse 28, they tell us that all these people, all the kings, all the rulers, were set against Jesus because God himself carried it out. The rulers themselves, they're only doing what God's hand and plan had predestined for them to do. They're just pawns in this game. They're not even making their own tactical moves in opposition to God's anointed one. They're just a part of the plan that God is carrying out. He is the one acting. So when you you place their persecution in this story, it takes on a very 
different meaning than if it was just aimed at Peter and John. Peter and John's persecution and suffering isn't really about them at all. It's about what God is doing through Jesus and about their allegiance to Jesus as king. God made the earthly rulers that are persecuting them. His, can, his hand carried out the work that, that killed Jesus. And right now, he's orchestrating the persecution they're enduring. So this sovereign God that's orchestrating this persecution it isn't doing it just because he's cruel, but because he has graciously made them a part of his plan. I think one way to understand what they're, what they're doing here by referencing Psalm 2 and then connecting it to what they just experienced is um, one of the commentaries I read described it as making sense of their persecution both historically and theologically. So historically, what they're saying is, hey, nothing new here. From Psalm 2, we saw that this was going to happen. We saw it happening when Jesus was here. It's happening with us right now as his messengers. So, so historically, they place it in that story. But then theologically, it makes sense because it's almost like they're saying, listen, God is the one carrying all of this out. He's the one that established David as a, a model type king to give us. He's the one that spoke through David, through his spirit. Then he established Jesus as the true king. And now he's using us as the messengers of this king. So once they situate their, their persecution in this story of what God is doing, it's at this point that they make the only requests in the whole prayer. Here's what they ask. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word. Two things. Look at their threats and give us what we need to continue to share about Jesus. Like I said earlier, they don't ask for the threats to go away. Uh, they don't ask for weapons to fight back. They don't even ask for, for anything that would push back on that persecution. The, the persecution's not about them. It's about what their sovereign Lord is doing. So they just ask that God would see the threats. I think what's amazing about that request is they're trusting that if God sees the threats, he'll know what to do. They don't tell him what they want him to do when he sees them. They just trust if God sees these threats, he'll know what to do. And then they pray that God would give them what they need to continue to teach about Jesus. Um, now, this one seems more obvious to me. They know that they don't have what they need. Uh, surely, Peter remembers his denial of Jesus right before Jesus was crucified. And so they know the only way they can continue to faithfully teach about Jesus is if God gives them the power to do it. So in these two requests, they ask God to see the threats, but trust him to respond as he sees fit. They entrust themselves to the very God that ordained Jesus's death. And they know that this could also be their future. And yet they trust God with that future. Because in Jesus, God had given them and gives us a promise that although his ways don't always make sense to us and might bring us suffering, in fact, will bring us suffering, 
that he always redeems that suffering for his people in the name of Jesus. Now, one of the things that I think is important to, to admit is that when we're suffering, when we're under persecution, when we go to God in prayer, we don't always have access to the broader story that that one event fits in. Uh, sometimes it can feel random. We, sometimes we can't draw a straight line from a psalm to something we experienced to what this is right now, just like John and Peter and their friends did. Sometimes we're left asking, why do people we love die tragically? Why do relationships that we depend on crumble and, and slip between our fingers? Why do things we've been anticipating for months or years or all week long suddenly get canceled? I think this makes me think about one of my least favorite experiences as a young father, and that is taking our young kids to their checkups with the doctors. And now, I didn't like the inconvenience of it. I didn't like sitting in you know, a room with a lot of sick people, but mostly what I really didn't like was the shots. That it felt like every visit, there was multiple shots that the kid had to have, and the nurse was asking me to hold my child down on the table while she stabs him repeatedly with needles that have, I guess, things that are good for him in it. And, and what I remember from all of my children is the look on their face as this is happening when they're looking at me. Now, I'm sure I'm projecting on them a little bit, but, but the look just screamed to me, why are you doing this? I am your child. You're supposed to love me. You're supposed to be the one caring for me and you're the one holding me down. So this happens to me. Why are you doing this? And I think that's where we find ourselves sometimes whenever we pray. But I also think that it's why the final attribute about God that we learn in this prayer is so sweet. These Christians are, are trusting God um, because he's sovereign. They're trusting God because he's active and, and they see how, how their suffering fits in God's work. But they also trust him because he is with them. That's the third thing I want us to look at tonight. God might be orchestrating their persecution. He might be asking them to suffer. He might even be asking them to suffer in ways that they don't always understand. But he's not asking them to do it alone while he sits safely out of harm's way. This God doesn't send them out alone on their mission. Uh, they ask for strength to speak God's word with boldness while God uh, stretches out his hand and heals and signs and wonders are performed in the name of Jesus. This sovereign Lord isn't a distant ruler sending the poor and the weak out onto the battlefield into harm's way for his own gain. His own hand is stretched out, working among his people. Their job is just to be his messengers, but God is right there with them, giving signs and wonders. And then when they're done praying, God gives them one of these signs. It tells us, Luke tells us that the room shakes and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, like a lot of the signs and wonders in Acts, it's easy to focus on the supernatural event. What was that shaking? Was it an earthquake? Did everybody in the city feel it? Was it just in that room? You know, what was that? Luke doesn't give us any, any details like that about what it was. 
But what Luke does tell us in Acts is that these supernatural events are always signs. They're never ends in themselves. They're always signs to tell us something about God. So what is this room shaking telling these Christians about God? It's telling them that he is with them. The sovereign Lord, the creator of the heavens, the earth, all that's in them, the one carrying out this plan, ordaining everything they're experiencing, is with them. The prayer end of the section ends by telling us that they're filled with the Holy Spirit. I think this is one of the most powerful, encouraging, and and even scandalous at this time claims for Christians, that although we were God's enemy, because of Jesus, this God is with us. So if you've ever thought, man, I wish I just could have lived when Jesus was on this earth. That really would encourage my faith. No, no, Jesus tells us that it's actually better for us to have God's Spirit in us and empowering us. The implication of a sovereign God that's carrying out His purpose, but also being intimately with us, totally changes the way we understand our prayers, especially in the midst of suffering. It changes the way we understand everything we're experiencing. Now, I I know Peter uh, and John were experiencing persecution. That's a very specific kind of thing. I'm not claiming that every suffering or every experience that we have is just like them. But in our, in our summer Bible study in Romans, we looked just a few weeks ago, one of the places where the New Testament tells us that, that these implications reach to every one of us and everything that we experience. Romans 5 tells us that because of Jesus, we can now rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Why can we rejoice in our sufferings? That's crazy. Romans 5 tells us it's because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Now, I think there's a lot of ways that this might encourage us individually to to reflect on God, to think about how our prayers, um, what they say about the God that we're praying to. But I want to spend the last few minutes by reminding you that this isn't a picture of one Christian praying alone. This is what it looked like for the church to devote themselves to prayer together. Look back at verse 24. It tells us that they lifted their voices together. So, Trinity, friends, we are subjects of this same sovereign Lord. He is active in this world, and he's with us right now. So I think the encouragement to us is let's pray to this God together. If you're weary, troubled, burdened, in need, reach out to your friends. Tell them what's going on and then pray together to this God that is overall, that is carrying out his plan and that is with you right now. If you're feeling encouraged, feeling bold, feeling well provided for, reach out to your friends. Ask him how they're doing. Pray to the God that is sovereign, that has made you a part of his redeeming work, and that has given you his spirit. Now, Matt is going to pray for us right now, that we would would build a community that prays to this God. But I'm going to be praying also that we'll be growing in our view of this sovereign Lord. 
Because as we grow in our view of a God that's sovereign, a God that is active and has included us in that plan, and a God that is with us as he asks us to carry out his plan with him, I pray that it'll lead us to come together and that it will make our prayers richer and more honoring to God.